Welcome, welcome everybody. Welcome back. Glad that you're here this morning. Glad to be in worship and glad to be here this morning with you. Just so that you know, we are finishing our series on eschatology. Over the last four weeks, we have worked through the doctrine of end times and what does it look like in the future when Jesus returns and what about the rapture and what about the Antichrist and what about the tribulation and the millennium and all those kinds of things. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 20 this morning. And this has been a good study for us. We did this with the pastoral goal that you should be ready. So Matthew chapter 24 has been our focal point for this entire month of October and will continue to be today because pastorally from my heart to yours as a a pastor and speaking to the people that God has called uh, to this church, it's my desire that you would be ready, that you would be spiritually ready, that you would be emotionally ready, that you would be in every way that you would be ready for the coming King and for the kingdom that will come. And um, an amazing uh, truth William Blackstone wrote in 1904, uh, he said, that, uh, that there is no other doctrine as studying this future prophecy which gives us the true incentive for a holy life. William Blackstone said that there's no other doctrine in the Word of God that presents a deeper motive for crucifying your flesh, for separation unto God, to work for souls, and as our hope and our joy and crown of rejoicing that this doctrine does. As a matter of fact, you can't read the last few chapters of Revelation without the overwhelming sense of come, Lord Jesus, come. Come and rescue your people and redeem your people and into your glory and and put an end to the uh, unrighteous system and the sinful world system that we are all accustomed to. So that's the cry of Revelation and that's the cry of the the true believer. That's the cry of the apostles in Acts chapter 1 as they watched Jesus ascending into the clouds and the angel looked over and said, Men of Galilee, do you see this Jesus who left in this way? He will return in the same way. And so at that moment, there was salted into the church this thirst for the return of Jesus, and from generation to generation to generation, it has been the cry of believers, your kingdom come, right? The prayer uh, that we all have learned as uh, children, if you were uh, raised in church, then you understand that this prayer that says, your kingdom come, our uh, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your will be done, your kingdom come, is this idea that we long for the return of God to restore creation, Because ever since Genesis 3, it's been messed up, right? Ever since the beginning when we first exposed the rebellion in our heart that said, uh, we don't want your rulership over us anymore, God. We don't want that. Creation, Paul tells us in Romans, it has been groaning. It has been groaning and twisting and it has been completely under the pressure of a sinful, fallen world order. And so because of that, it has been the longing of every genuine believer that Jesus would return, that He would come and rescue and redeem His people. And so this morning, we finish that topic off. It's it's the millennium that we're going to look at. The thousand year reign of Christ as depicted in the book of Revelation chapter 20. And the whole idea was that you would be ready uh, and that you would not be ignorant about end times. A lot of people are just kind of 
content to say, I don't need to know the details. It doesn't matter to me if I'm pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib or if I'm amillennial or post-millennial or pre-millennial. None of those things really matter. I just know that in the end, Jesus wins and it's good enough for me. But I'm going to make the case to you, and I have over the last four weeks, that when you know the future, it changes your behavior today. If I told you all that, hey, in six months we're going to go on a cruise and we're going to, uh, we're going to be uh, sunbathing all over the Mediterranean beaches, um, you know, I don't know about you, but they would change the way I do things today, right? I would probably eat a little better. I'd go on a diet. I may kind of work out a little bit more than I'm doing now. Do something different. Because when you know that something's coming, you live differently in light of it. If I told you that we're going to run a marathon uh, four months from now, We would change our routines. We would do something different. So you do this every day. You change the way you live if you know something in the future is compelling enough for you to live a certain way. And so the Bible describes the end times, the coming of Jesus, what this world is headed toward. So in light of that, you will live a different way if you're not ignorant of those things. And so we've been working through Revelation and we've been working through these end times features uh, because there's, if you go to the next slide, in September there was this sort of crazy lead up to this uh, weird prophecy from Revelation 12 that pointed to some astronomy that uh, the virgin will be with child and she will give birth. And this virgin had uh, 10 crowns on her head and uh, the moon was at her feet and the sun was at her uh, was, she was clothed with the sun and so we looked into this because there was a cultural expectation that in the midst of Revelation 12 that this astrological sign pointed to some signal toward the end and so in light of all those things and these eclipses we wanted you to have an understanding of what the Bible really says about the end times so that you don't have to watch a YouTube video and freak out, right? That Jesus came back and I missed it because there was something in the signs and the clouds and in the heavens and in the stars. And so in light of all of that, it's best to go to the authoritative Word of God for a clear understanding of what must soon take place. And so if you go to the next slide, we've been working through uh, the doctrine of end times, and we've covered all of these different ideas about the end times, but we've sort of come to a basic understanding. You and I, we came to an agreement that though I'm not teaching every single verse, uh, my goal was not to give you a comprehensive seminary class about the end times. For every, trust me, for every one verse I shared, I left 20 off, okay? For every, so I came sometimes with lists of Scripture because I wanted you to have a full understanding of what the end times look like. But my goal is really to give you a sketch. So as we've worked through the book of Revelation and Matthew chapter 24, we understand uh, better, if you've been with us these four weeks, about the sketch, the big picture, the 40,000 kind of foot view of what will take place during the end times. And if you just follow the simple chronology of Revelation, you see that Jesus comes to him in Revelation 1, and that he just presents himself and says, that I'm about to show you what's going to take place. Then he gives two chapters, 
what's recorded for us is Revelation 2 and 3, which is church-dominated. It's church-focused. It is the letter to the seven churches, and it gives them instruction to overcome. It gives them instruction to keep going. It gives them instruction to deal with persecution and all the difficulties. But something unusual happens. At the end of chapter 3, where we get to 3, 8 through 10, he says, there will come a future trial, and I will spare you, church, from that trial. And so we hint that this may present a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. In this pre-tribulation rapture, you say, well, there's no word in the Bible rapture. I've looked it up. There's no word. And you're right. It's the word harpazo from Greek. From 1 Thessalonians 4, it means to be snatched away or to be caught up. And that idea is mentioned several times. And we get the word rapture from the Latin translation of that Greek word, which is rapio, and it describes the same thing, to be caught up, to be snatched away. And so we see in Revelation 3 an idea of what could fit a rapture. And I don't hold all that with a real closed fist, and I'm not real dogmatic and say that if you don't hold to that view, there's something wrong with you or me. That's not the way any of us should approach future prophecy. But what we do see is in chapters 4 and 5, we are transported into the throne room of God where there are 24 elders and angels, and they're all giving worship to God. And what you can't help but notice in Revelation 4 and 5 are two features. There is amazing, overflowing, overwhelming worship for God. As they were singing, Molly and and her band were singing this morning. I just was praying and thinking, Lord, there's going to be a time when we won't want the song to end. There's going to be a time when we're so overwhelmed with the glory of God and His presence that that we're just going to continue. It, It will be this... Um, spontaneous, overwhelming, completely dominating worship experience with God that we will, it will never end. When you tell people that heaven is a worship experience for God, man, a lot of people say, I don't know if I'm so into that. <laughs> I have a hard time singing two or three songs in church. How am I supposed to endure a heaven that is a continual worship service. And a lot of times that re- demonstrates where our hearts are. We, we kind of want heaven without God sometimes. We want heaven with our friends and our loved ones and our relatives. And we want, you know, for me it's green fairways and a, a perfect swing without slices. And, uh, you know, it's this wonderful golf land of paradise where everything, I, it's always 70 and perfect and the weather is beautiful Some people's view of heaven has nothing to do with Jesus at all. If Jesus wasn't there, they would be perfectly happy if their loved ones and their relatives were in some sort of future paradise. But the reality is that that the Bible describes heaven as this place of overwhelming worship. And that's what Revelation 4 depicted. But it also got dark a little bit in Revelation 5, didn't it? Because uh, the seals, the seal was handed, the scroll, and it was rolled up and it had all these seals on it. And nobody was found to open the seal. And so John looked, and what he saw was this slain lamb. This slain lamb that was, um, that was mangled. And this was a picture of Jesus, the crucified Jesus, who's the only one worthy to take the seals. Well, from there, we get Revelation 6 to 19 of tribulation, the seven-year tribulation. You can find and read about that in Daniel in his 70 weeks. It's kind of the last period uh, of this future tribulation. And so 
from that, we kind of understand that the world is not getting better, but it's heading toward this tribulation period where the wrath of God is poured out. Uh, if you turn over to Revelation 19, if you flip back a chapter to 19, you see in verse 11 the rider on the white horse. Now this is uh, coming on the heels of what is known as Armageddon. Armageddon is its really just a valley. It's called the Valley of Megiddo. And um, I was in Israel a couple years ago and we stood on Mount Carmel. And as we stood on Mount Carmel, you can look east toward the Sea of Galilee. And there's kind of a mountain range on your right and a mountain range on your left. And the only thing in the middle there was this huge valley. It was the only place big enough for battles to happen. So if you were going to have a battle, and it was going to be a big battle, you wouldn't go to the mountains and have a a battle in the mountains. The Old Testament describes people fleeing to the mountains. It's because all the big battles happened in Megiddo. Megiddo became a place of, of death and battle and warfare. And so Armageddon literally just means the Valley of Megiddo. It's just where a battle will take place. And the tribulation period will end with this Antichrist figure uniting the world in peace. Quickly warfare comes and then this huge battle comes. And at the end of this is, this, is where we pick up in 1911. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, this white horse, and the one who is on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, which is uh, reminiscent of John's picture of Jesus in Revelation 1. His eyes are like flames of fire, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. John 1. This is everything signaling, telling you this is Jesus. And the armies of heaven, that is, those who he is bringing with him, the uh, pre-tribulation raptured church, the tribulation believers, and the Old Testament saints are all part of that raptured heavenly force that have their new heavenly bodies that are coming back in verse 14. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This rod of iron was also mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, that he gives to the church a rod of iron to rule with him. Jesus comes with this rod of iron to rule. This is the millennial kingdom coming. And it says he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. This is finally the place where uh, the wickedness and the sinfulness is being um, dealt with. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There's six or seven really good hints that this is Jesus himself in this passage. But if you didn't get it up until then... Verse 16 tells you that this is Jesus' second coming. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice he called to all the birds, and they basically clean up the mess in the valley of Megiddo. Uh, Skip down to verse 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies that gathered to make war against Jesus. This is all the humans that have come against Jesus to fight him in the battle of Armageddon there north of uh, Jerusalem. 
The beast was captured with his false prophet, that's the Antichrist, and who his presence had done by signs by which they deceived, and those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest of those slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds uh, ate their flesh. Very violent picture here. So we kind of understand all this, and, and you're thinking to yourself, man, this is, this is kind of ugly. This is weird, and this is, you know, this is what you expect in a rated R kind of violent movie. And you're right. You're right. This is terrible. Throughout the tribulation, we've seen the the earth rearranged. We've seen stars and comet kind of things slamming into the earth and creating holes and all this pestilence and disease and violence, the three uh, woes, the seven trumpets, the seven seals, the seven bowls. All of these things have contributed to the picture that you should have that, man, I hope we're pre-trib. I mean, I hope we get called up before this because this is an ugly picture, but things have to take place in this way so that when we get to chapter 20, we understand that Jesus will come and set up his kingdom. And so turn our attention to Revelation 20 and we see this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended and that he must be released for a little while. All right, pause there. A couple notes. One out of six times, thousand years is used in this passage. We're going to hear thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. It means a thousand years. Some people kind of want to spiritualize it and say it doesn't mean a thousand years. It just means a period of time. But any time the scripture uses a number and a time, it is describing literally that period of time. If you spiritualize it, then you have to spiritualize everything in Revelation. But the first thing that happens when Jesus establishes his thousand year reign is that he binds Satan. There are five things that happen in a prescribed sequence. An angel comes down. He's a mighty angel. He's a big angel. He's got to be uh, enough because he carries with him a great chain and he has a key. Right. So picture this huge angel with this big chain and a key to the abyss. Uh, we've heard these things in Jesus' ministry, right? The, in, uh, in, uh, as he ministered to the demoniac. You remember that? that uh, passage about Jesus and he arrives uh, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee on the other side and out comes from the tombs what? This demoniac, this crazy guy who's uh, possessed by a thousand, by a legion of demons, right? And it says that no one could bind this guy even with chains. And so he comes out and he runs to meet Jesus and he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God and you have not come to um, to you know, dismiss us before the time, right? And then he says this something curious. Jesus is about Jesus is driving it out, and as he does, he says, "Whatever you do, don't send us where to the abyss." What is the abyss? Uh, in Greek class, I I used to, it's the Greek word abyssos, and it just stuck with me. I didn't say applesauce. All these kids' heads just went up. <laughs> Applesauce. I'll have some applesauce. Uh, it's not applesauce. It's abyssauce. But that's how I used it in Greek because I have a juvenile mind to remember abyssauce. Because if I, I, I'm, just, I'm saying too much, but 
I pictured a bottomless pit of applesauce. And that's how I remember that applesauce is the abyss, and it just means bottomless. T-M-I, I understand, but... Satan is bound for a thousand years and thrown into the pit. And so how do we understand this? Let's just, let's just uh, sort of get it this way. If you, if you think of angels on this line, there are angels. Uh, Hebrews tells us that they are ministering spirits that God has created, that they are servants, that they uh, operate in a spiritual realm. And the Bible presents this as a reality. That's not too hard for you to believe, right? That there are angels. No, probably not. Um, a lot of people um, understand that there are angels. There's an entire spiritual realm. And so if you think about that line of angels, break that into two. There are fallen angels and good angels. The fallen angels serve Satan, and the good angels serve God and His purposes. If you take the fallen angel line and you divide that into, there are bound angels And then there are loose angels, fallen angels. The loose ones are the ones that they just jack up our life, right? They're the ones that are tempting us and and creating a system that enables us, uh, a system that makes it easy for you to sin. They don't get in your head and make you sin. We sin because we are fallen people, but they make it easy for you to sin. They make it easy for destruction. They inhabit people. There are three or four ways that they mess with us. They oppress, they possess, uh, and then they influence. And so this demonic oppression, suppression, I mean, uh, uh, influence and possession, all those things are what create uh, so much of the wickedness in the world. Within those who are bound, there are uh, two types that are bound agents. So you have angels. Uh, on the second line, you have fallen and good. On the fallen, for diagramming this, we have uh, angels who are bound and loose. And then in the bound category, there are those who are temporarily bound and those who are permanently bound. Okay, the Permanent bound ones, you go back to Genesis 6, right? You remember Genesis 6 where the Nephilim, there's this weird passage where the sons of God come down to the daughters of men and they try to create this unredeemable race. This hybrid, angelic, human race. And this is why Jude and Peter says that they were cast into gloomy pits of darkness. They were cast into the abyss. Because these are the ones that tried to cohabitate and create this Nephilim race that was stamped out. But the point is that as Jesus comes to establish His millennial thousand year reign, the first thing He does is to bind Satan and presumably all of those fallen demons with him. So you think, yes, the enemy is gone. Now this place, this earth that Jesus is going to set up his thousand year reign from Jerusalem, ruling with this entire army of the redeemed saints, now... This is going to be righteousness. This is going to be righteousness. And so we read in chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, that Satan is bound. It's sealed up. The bad news is, uh, it says at the end of verse 3, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. 
you're reading it, I think, why? Why does he have to be released? Why can't he just stay in the pit, in the applesauce, um, the endless pit of applesauce? Why, does he have to, why can't he just get out of there? Why does he have to come out? We'll get to that in a minute. But verse 4 describes the second feature of the millennium. The first is there is no Satan. There is no demonic influence for a thousand years, which automatically improves everything. Because you have the righteous rule of Jesus, and then you have the unrighteous rule of Satan in that period, and those two are switched. So verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their heads and their foreheads. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's the first resurrection. Happens in a series, but it's this first resurrection. Verse 5 tells us there's another one. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. says it right there. The first resurrection is this series. Uh, It happens at the the millennial return of Jesus. And let me just kind of help us understand. Jesus comes down before the tribulation, not all the way to the earth, to call up His people, the church. The church is removed. Uh, It's called in Scripture, the restraining effect on humanity is removed. All right. Then once that is removed, our bodies, uh, you know, they are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's First Thessalonians four. We go up. Then after that, during the tribulation, there are new believers. People give their life to Christ. The redemptive purpose of God shifts back to Israel and all nations as well. But people get saved. And in the midst of the tribulation, there are people being saved. And then at the second coming, when Jesus comes at the millennium, He brings with Him the church, the Old Testament saints, and the tribulation believers. Are we all clear on this? Just say yes, and we'll keep moving. Yes. It all makes sense at some point. I'm just trying to give you a big overflow idea. But the point is of chapters, verses 4 through 6, is that we will have a part in the reign with Christ. We will have a part. The Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, and the raptured tribulation saints. We will have a part, a literal physical part. If you think about the righteous reign of Jesus, on the earth, 4,000 years, He will be ruling from Jerusalem, and you will have responsibilities. Peter said, Lord, we left everything to follow you, didn't we? And Jesus said, for every one of you who left homes and fathers and mothers and parents and and lands and money, He said, there will come to you uh, more. Maybe one of you will be ruled over five cities and one will be ruled over ten cities. He is literally talking about the millennial kingdom where we will have a hand in ruling and reigning and judging in this thousand year reign. With our glorified awesome bodies, we will have a part in reigning over the millennial kingdom under Jesus. It's incredible to think about 
all the cities, all the people, all the places, without the deceiver. And you think about all the government positions, all the education positions, all the civic positions, all of the cultural positions, as far as entertainment and uh, information, all of those realms of society, technology, science, all of those realms of the future millennial community and kingdom of God will have you and I with a hand of reigning over under Jesus' lordship. It's phenomenal to think about. And so in many ways, what you do now will determine, what you do on this life will determine what you will be in the millennial reign of Christ. Sometimes I think about it, I think, if I could just be a custodian, that would be great. If I could just have like the, the lowest of low jobs in the millennial kingdom, it's fine. It's fine with me. Who wouldn't just want to be in the millennial kingdom? I'll take anything. So that happens during the millennium. The third thing that happens in the millennium, in that thousand year reign of Christ, is that when the thousand years are ended, verse 7, Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for a battle. Their number will be like the sand of the sea, and they marched up the plain. Uh, we'll get back to that in just a second, but skip down to Revelation 20 at the end, verse 11. The fourth feature of the millennium will be, it will end with judgment. Amos, Obadiah, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of these, pro- Daniel, point forward to the coming of the, the day of the Lord. And it's in this day of the Lord that we see judgment happening on all people. Look at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and the one who was seated on it. And from its presence, now earth and sky fled away and there's no place found for them. And then I saw the dead, that's everybody, uh, great and small, standing before the throne and the books are opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in those books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written, found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the final judgment, the Matthew 25 sheep and the goats, the separation of those who have looked forward to and put their faith in Jesus Christ and those who haven't. And it's at this day of judgment that everything will be sorted out in the end. That's the final feature of the millennium. Let's go back to the defeat of Satan and his release. Because I want to end on this point. It's a big point, so don't get your hopes up too much. But, but uh, it's the last point. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released. Why? Why is this? Now, I want you to see something. But you see a spiritual principle. In the millennium, under the righteous rule of Jesus Christ, under the righteous rule of all of His resurrected saints who have just cleaned up at the battle of Armageddon and established a righteous kingdom. Listen, there will be no lawbreakers. There will be instant justice. There will be truth. There will be no deception whatsoever. And so in this 1,000 year perfect environment, listen, there will still be unbelievers. 
there will be children born to people, natural ways, and they will still be born with the depravity of sin as the dominant feature of their life. They will see Jesus in His glorified state. They will hear His voice. They will hear judgments from Him. They will hear His glorified saints, us, in every corner of the world, and they will still not believe. Does that blow your mind? Sometimes we think, if I was just in the Garden of Eden, in the most perfect environment, there's no way I would sin. Under the most perfect conditions, humanity chose sin. And sometimes you think, if I was in Israel, uh, and I was, if I was part of the Egypt, Egyptian exodus, and if I saw the Red Sea open, if I saw the, all the miracles that God did, and if I knew all those things, I would not have stumbled. Right? I would have focused up, and I would have been all in for God, and committed in 100%. And yet, we find people... Making a golden calf, right? At Exodus 30, they're making a calf. And why are they worshiping this calf? Moses has only been gone for a couple weeks. They heard the voice of God coming up, the smoke on the mountain. All this. They're under the mountain of God while Moses is there hearing the word and getting the scripture. And, and in the midst of that, Exodus describes this golden calf event where they make a, they literally make a God. And when he comes down, Moses, Aaron says, I threw all this gold into the fire, and this is what popped out. Their hearts were drawn to worship, not the true God. And you would say, I would never do that. But in, in, in the times of Jesus, you have, he basically banished disease from Palestine, right? I mean, he healed everybody for a period of three years. Almost everybody who could limp, walk, get carried, find themselves in the presence of Jesus got healed. He basically taught truth and, he, and there were still people who in light of His righteousness and His holiness and His miracles, they still, when they had an opportunity, yelled what? Crucify Him. Crucify Him. So my humble warning caution to you is don't think too highly of yourself. Because if you are in the millennial kingdom, there will still be people who refuse to follow Jesus. And so Satan has to be released to draw them together for one final battle. Now, it's a, it's a slaughter. We win. Right? I'm just going to tell you, at the end of Revelation 20, um, verse 10, the devil who had deceived them, he was thrown into the lake of fire, and he's destroyed the pit of sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever so there's an eternal punishment for the devil and for his horde but we're baffled by the fact that people will still reject Jesus in his glorified state and so I want to kind of shed some light on why that is John chapter 3 tells us something John chapter 3 verse 19 says, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest their work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Why will there be people who reject Jesus? 
Why do you reject Jesus? Why did people in the first century reject Jesus? Why did they yell crucify him? Simple answer. Men love darkness. We love sin. Don't we? We absolutely love sin and rebellion. And in the face of Jesus and his righteousness, we will, not us, but some people will say, I refuse to follow you. Grayson and I were reading in Revelation. And at the end of chapter 8, it says that at the worst of the judgment bowls and seals, there are still people who refuse to repent. What is it? What is it about the depravity of my heart and your heart? that loves sin more than it loves Jesus. It is that. It is our depraved hearts. Some people see the, some people see the gospel as, if, if I just get some help, if Jesus can just kind of put me on the right track, help me deal with my addictions, help me deal with my bad temper, help me deal with my jealousy or my judgmentalism or my covetousness or my <laughs> adultery or my drunkenness. If Jesus just kind of helps fix me up a little bit, then he can let me go and I'll be on the right path. But, but we know that it's not true. Redemption requires something dead being brought to life. Something dead in its sin being raised up to new life. You don't need help. You need Jesus to make you alive. And this is the problem of Revelation 20, where people still don't want to believe. And Satan is released so that they have a leader to rally around, and so that together they can shake their fists at the host of heaven and Jesus himself and say, we will not submit to you. And we would rather choose eternal torment than we would to live in a righteous kingdom. I think, I think you get this. I think naturally you understand because within you there's a battle. There's a battle that says, I want justice, I want Jesus, I want righteousness, I want forgiveness, but I also love my sin. I also want to drink a little more. I also want to watch something I shouldn't watch. I also want to covet financial blessing and gain. I also want health and wealth and, and all the wonderful things. I want these things and we want sin And this battle pulls against us. And so if you're redeemed the rest of your life, if you're a believer in Christ, you will wrestle with this sanctifying struggle to make Jesus Lord of your life. So the final word in this series of the end times is that hopefully understanding what will take place does something for you today. It makes you want to worship Jesus, to follow Jesus, to allow Him to have lordship over your life, to to repent of your love of sin, and to foster your love for Jesus before it's too late. When I was in sixth grade, I moved to a new city, and um, I befriended a kid behind me, in the house behind me, and Brandon was a nice guy. Um, He was my first real friend in a new city. If you've ever moved, you know how weird it is to move to a new place, and uh, you make a friend, and and it seems like everything goes well after that. You, before, you're kind of lonely, you're nervous, you're approaching middle school, going to a public school that you've never been to before with people who have been friends for a long time. And so Brandon and I became friends during the summer before that time. And we played together every day and we did stuff together all the time. And then we got into school and I began to meet and mingle with a whole new group of kids. And they were really more like me, better friends, more in common. And my time with Brandon kind of began to wane. And there was a weird thing that happened. I'm, I'm saying way too much. It's kind of dumb. But, 
But Brandon and my new friend Jeremy got into an argument one day after school. And so it became one of these, hey, meet me at 3 o'clock, man. Meet me at 3 o'clock by the fence, and we're going to fight this out. And so here I am kind of torn with like 20 other middle school boys and girls. And Brandon and Jeremy are going to square off. My friend and my new friend. And I'm just kind of torn in the middle of this situation. And man, Jeremy's ripped. He's like a little kid who could just, you could just tell he's going to fight. No one thought Brandon could win. And man, sure enough, Jeremy just nails him like right in the face. And instantly Brandon is bleeding everywhere from his face. And then Jeremy doesn't stop. He gets him on the ground. He's like wedgies and pulling his shirt over his head and just beating up on Brandon. And Brandon is kind of grass stained and bloody on the ground. And it's this terrible moment for Brandon, yes. <laughs> but this is about me, right? I'm so selfish. This is about me. But Brandon, I'm sitting there thinking, new friend just pummeled him. New friend is awesome. Old friend, faithful friend, good friend, less popular friend is bleeding on the ground. And what am I going to do? How am I supposed to choose what to do and who to go with and who to help? And so not because there's anything good in me. I'm just standing there struggling. And Brandon looks up at me and says, come on, Gibson, let's go home. And everybody kind of looks to me. And Jeremy's cool. He just says, yeah, go with him, man. Go with him and help him out. It's a weird act of compassion from the school bully. (laughs) And I went with Brandon and cleaned him up, but just picked him up and cleaned him up and got him all fixed up and I got to this point where I thought, I don't know why I was reminded, I hadn't thought of that in 25 years or so. But as I got to that, it it just something triggered within me that moment of a difficult choice. And you have a choice, really, today. I mean, you see Jesus, He was slaughtered, He was killed, He was crucified, He was dead. He went into a grave and the world thought it won. The world thought it won. The culture has reigned. Every day you face friends and family and people and they say things like, how can you believe in Jesus or that old book? Or how can you side and believe in this fairy tale, this giant spaghetti monster kind of thing? Why are you believing in that? And so you have this choice to say, will I side with the slain, bloody, crucified lamb? who promises, right? this is where the departure happens from my middle school story. Because if it got really true in middle school story, Brandon would have like beefed up and he would have taken the supplements and he would have done all the work and three years later he would have come back and got his justice against Jeremy. But that never happened. Jeremy moved to Texas and some Brandon just still stayed kind of scrawny. <laughs> so unlike that, <laughs> Jesus says, I'm going to bulk up and come back. I'm going to come back on a horse. I'm going to come back with a horde of folks. And this is going to end. He's got a blazing fireball coming out of his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth. He's got tattoos on his thigh that says, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And as he comes back, he's coming back to demonstrate the wrath and the glory of God on evil forever. And what you decide now determines where you will be in that millennial kingdom. 
at this moment, you can decide, I will repent and believe in the coming King of glory, or I will continue to love my sin. I will continue to love pornography. I will continue to love alcoholism. I will continue to love adultery. I will continue to love my covetous, sinful, wicked desire for new and better and shinier things or experiences or addictions. You will choose today whom you will serve. And on that day, there will be recompense. (coughs) This is where history is moving. And my pastoral hope and prayer for you is that you'll be prepared. Lord Jesus, I confess, I I deeply love you. You have redeemed me from the pit. I was an atheist who loved my sin, and I didn't believe any of this. But you chose to save me through the worst of circumstances. You came and made yourself known through your people, through your church, through messages like this. And by your grace alone, you gave me a new life. And I worship you for that. And it's my solemn duty to stand before people that you deeply love and to warn them of your coming and of your offer for mercy now. And that's my prayer that that they would receive your gift of forgiveness now. Lord Jesus, would you move in the hearts and minds of people today they may be found in you on that day. That they would no longer love their sin, they would no longer love their wicked ways, but that they would love you, Lord Jesus.